When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everybody. How are you? It is, uh, let's see, the 9th of September, 2021. Almost got the year wrong by two years. Uh, and this is the Luke Thomas live chat. I am your host, Luke Thomas. And um, yeah, how are you doing? Episode 86. We're chilling. I just came straight from the motherfucking gym. So... Sorry about that. Traffic was really bad. It took me, usually it only takes me 15 minutes to get home. It took me 45, which fucking sucked. So I got sweat stains and I look like shit. But that's normal. You're used to that, aren't you? I think you are. All right, I'm rambling. On today's program, we'll talk about Triller. Whatever else is really on your mind, you guys know how this goes. I put up a thread on Thursday on the community section of the website. People fill it up and then we get to it, blah, 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 blah. Okay? So first things first, thumbs up on the video. Click it. Okay, good. Subscribe if you haven't. Talking to you, yes, you, in the back, you, hit subscribe, thank you, thank you for hitting subscribe, I appreciate that. Um, all right, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back, all right, I'll turn this off, and let's get to the questions. How is everybody doing? I am doing well. Oh, good thing my neighbor has decided to mow his yard twice in the same week. Actually, twice in the last two days. And uh, is doing it right when I have programming. I really appreciate that about him. Nice guy. All right. Let's do this. Mm. Psycho less. All right. Did you ever think about going to graduate school and pursuing a career in academia? Did I ever think about it? Yes, I did think about it. You have all of the ter terrible personality traits required to be a successful academic. Sincerely, a neuroscience PhD candidate. Well, assuming that that is actually true, I'll take that as flattering. Yeah, uh, my dad wanted me to go into academia. Um, thought about it thought about it but very much glad that I didn't considering there's hardly any jobs and tenure track is extremely difficult to get um you know I didn't really plan for this to be my life either candidly but I don't know once I was done with schooling and not to say I was done because I've always sort of tried to maintain lifelong learning Turn this up just a little bit but um one more time but yes I did give it thought just not much more than a little bit of thought. I'll put it that way. All right. Uh, let's see. 
Many have called Jake Paul and his fights a circus, YouTube boxing, celebrity boxing, but with the fact that Paul versus Woodley did very well in terms of build-up buys and being competitive, do you think Jake Paul fights are going to become normalized in boxing rather than a subgenre of boxing? No, I don't. Um, I don't really know what the long-term play is for Jake Paul. I mean, you know, there. This is the interesting part about being like here. Okay. From what I can tell, I'm not nearly as popular on YouTube as these these guys have been, right? Very, very much not in the same ballpark. But I've been on YouTube just paying attention to some degree about the sort of the trends and what happens. There was a while there where these guys were all, I, I don't know if they were proclaiming that they were rap artists, but like they were putting out diss tracks and all other kinds of stuff. And the videos would do really well. Um, in terms of like YouTube metrics, but it never really resulted in much beyond sort of just that. Now, this is a leap into, you know, Showtime as a partner for the broadcasting and promotional side of things, obviously. But what I've noticed with sort of these YouTube guys is that they go through these phases where they're doing one thing and it lasts a little while. They take it, you know, about as far as it's going to go and then they just move to the next thing. And because the audience is interested in them, they just kind of go along with it. Now, there might be more to the market about YouTube boxing where um, is there a market for people with these large audiences on these online digital platforms for young people and they sort of settle their disputes that way or, you know, generate interest for themselves that way. You know, there might be something to that long term. But I have found that, you know, internet trends and um, developments, they don't last all that long. And this is still from that. And, and more to the point, like, dude, what is the... What is the end game here? Like, what you can say about Jake Paul, I think, in a generous way, right? We'll do both here in just a second. But in a generous way, he is an incredibly good self-promoter. He's very good. He's better than most fighters I've ever covered, like, by far. Um, he's very, very good at that. And I think he understands his worth. He's good at, like, applying that. You know, he ran 50% of that show. For folks who don't realize, like, the open workouts and... I don't know about the weigh-ins, but I think the weigh-ins, too. But, like, the open workouts the presser, and then the weigh-ins. Showtime broadcast them, but those were Jake Paul MVP productions. Like, they ran those. Those were their things. Showtime didn't run those. Um, half of the broadcast was controlled by MVP, or at least, you know, uh, up front, they made some demands about what kind of things that they wanted from, um, you know, what was plugged and what was on the ring and what kind of talent was you. I mean, all kinds of stuff was he, he had a hand in. Like, he has such a clear understanding of what a high-level prize fighter can do in terms of monetary reward, what those numbers look like, how to promote a fight, how to sell a fight, how to find an opponent. You know, like, on that level, uh, he is quite adept. But, you know, when it, like, people keep asking me, like, is he good? No, he is not good. No, he is not good. He is not good. Uh, he's never going to be good in all likelihood, and that's not a knock on him. He might beat fighters from MMA that you respect, I think that's certainly possible. But the reality is this. He picked up boxing in his 20s. Uh, basically, what is he, 24? He'd been doing it for three years. So he picked it up boxing at 21, which is insanely late. I've told you guys the story of Seth Mitchell, even a guy who, like that who was a D1 Michigan State athlete in a weak division at heavyweight. Even he ran into a roadblock where there was just no coming back from it. Now, granted, he also, I think, had not brain damage in the sense where like, you know, he was slurring his speech, but he had a career in football, American football, prior to going into boxing. And I think it didn't make his chin his strongest suit. 
Uh, Jake doesn't seem to have some of those issues for now anyway. But what's the end game here? Right? The minute he fights somebody who's actually really good, it will probably go quite bad for him. So I'm, I'm guessing he's going to avoid that. So then what he'll do is he'll try to find these other names. And maybe that can go on for longer than I expect or you expect. Like, I don't know exactly what the shelf life on that is. But at some point, even that will run its course. You're just going to have all, you're going to, you know, you're going to have 20 fights against people who everyone sort of universally recognizes as maybe something of an interesting opponent. But otherwise, you know, this is all fairly low level. I don't, I don't really think that. And I think he also he got a bit of a taste against Tyron Woodley about like what happens when you go up against a real athlete with at least some combat sports experience, even if striking, pure striking anyway, is not necessarily their, is not at all their background. Uh, striking was involved, obviously, in his background, but not in this particular way. And he was, you know, uh, I think the numbers are pretty clear that Tyron's been gun shy for a while, uh, or at least, you know, whatever the situation is, has not thrown with volume, whatever the, whatever the reason why not. So um, do I think that Jake Paul fights are going to become normalized in boxing rather than a subgenre of it? I mean, in some sense, they already have become normalized, but I just don't see this as a long-term trend. I think he's he's doing the Mike Chandler bit. He's not here for a long time. He's here for a good time. So watch him while they're here or not. Up to you. Um, but I just don't think it's possible to compete even at cruiserweight um, you know, or light heavyweight, whatever he eventually gets down to, uh, starting boxing at 21 and to actually get good. It's, it's just not really possible. You've got guys, you know, who've been doing that uh, and nothing else since they were six or something. And, you know, he, for, uh, for a celebrity, he can box. For a boxer, he's a celebrity. It's the best way I can explain it. Um, is T.R. Titor... <laughs> Going to kill a Vander Holyfield, uh, or would the real deal make a decent account of himself? I asked this after seeing him hit the pads in that video. Yeah. So, Marcos Vijegas over at um, Fight Hub was in, I think Danny Segura's there too. I don't know if he filmed the open workout, but um, there was an open workout. And let me just say this. First of all, it wasn't like Vitor looked super awesome on the mitts either. I mean, it looked to me like he was having difficulty understanding the boxing combinations his coach was calling for. It wasn't like he was blowing them up himself, but, you know, hard to know exactly how much effort is being put into an open workout, especially with all the craziness that's happening uh, there. Listen, here's the thing with Evander Holyfield, because I've gotten some pushback from folks being like, how do you know it's going to go bad? I don't. I don't know what that is going to go bad. I, I am not Miss Cleo. I cannot, which is a very 90s reference, but I'm not, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not... I don't know how it's going to go. The, the issue is not how I know it's going to go. The issue is what we know about risk factors related to age and other uh, health-related concerns about Evander, as well as some other promotional concerns, which I'll talk about in just a second, and what that ultimately totals up to in how you assess risk. Here is something that I have just realized over time. Not that I'm like the old and wise guy of the MMA world. That's not really it either. But I am old enough now where I can see my life in decades. I've got four of them under my belt. Okay, four decades under my belt, and each one was very distinct in in their own way. And what you learn, at least what I feel like I have learned, I'll put it that way. What I feel like I have learned is that you get when you go through school, especially early, you get taught about these big, grand world events. And two things always occurred to me: one, they seemed so far in the past, and then two, they seemed like the kinds of things that would affect someone else's life. Not 
the life that I was in. I don't mean to say that it, it existed in a faraway country, but I mean, oh, this these events are so rare, they won't happen within my lifetime. It will take several lifetimes for that to happen. It turns out it's just not really true. You know, up to about age 17 or so, the world was fairly, fairly predictable. I mean, yeah, there was the Gulf War and that set off a series of events that, you know, later produced what it produced. But um, in general, like it was fairly peaceful. Um, the economy was, it didn't crater out. Um, crime dropped precipitously during my lifetime through age 20. You know, it was just fairly... It's everything seemed to go where everything was going to be peaceful and normal and ordinary for the most part for life. And then everything after 9-11 just completely blew that up. You had 9-11 where the country was attacked. You had, a fin- you know, seven years later, you had profound financial calamity. And then, you know, they're just that now you have this sort of decline in the trust of institutions, which has any number of effects um, in how the world uh, people see the world. But you might be asking what that has to do with this. Here's what I mean to say. I do not know that Evander Holyfield is going to suffer a deep physical trauma on Saturday. I have no idea. In fact, I remember distinctly, it was, again, different situation, but I remember distinctly when Tim Sylvia was supposed to fight Ray Mercer, and there was a whole thing there about are they going to fight in a cage and a ring and blah, 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 what kind of gloves? And then Ray Mercer went in there and just completely starched him and toppled him, and like that was very shocking at the time. Granted, Ray Mercer didn't have the same documented issues that Evander did, and he was also, I think, like 12 years younger than Evander is now or something. But... Nevertheless, like, is it possible that Evander could go in there and just absolutely starch Vitor, who himself is not necessarily a young guy? Yes, it is. I, I, I cannot say that that is not something that, that could happen. Of course it could happen, but that's really not what I'm banking on. What I'm banking on is an assessment of a larger picture of risk, right? You have a 58-year-old guy who'll be 59 in less than a month, okay? So let's say really almost about 60, who even 16 years ago in New York was basically admonished by the commission and was told, like, your business in the state in terms of being regulated to fight professionally is over. Um, He had threatened basically litigation with Triller because he was supposed to get a fight against Peter McNeely, which still would have sucked, but doesn't seem nearly as dangerous. And California said, I'm not touching that shit with a 10-foot pole. Y'all can go fuck yourself. So they went commission shopping on a week's notice, probably, I don't know this for sure, but probably to resolve a litigation issue. And you've got Vitor Belfort, who... Um, you know, looks at least somewhat rejuvenated since his departure from UFC. Is he on any kind of performance-enhancing drug? I don't know, but I don't think that question is necessarily out of bounds either. In other words, between the immediacy of how it was developed, the documented long-time history of Evander's health issues, by the way, financial woes as well, this uh, situation to resolve any potential litigation and then commission shopping on top of it, to me, when you stack that up, that is not a guarantee of disaster, but it courts enough risk that you should say, I don't really agree with rolling the dice. The big lesson from my life is that what's the likeliest outcome on Saturday? Maybe it'll be fine. It might be fine. It might be fine. But I've lived enough life now, just enough, to see that those scenarios that seemed so distant, that seemed so infrequent, they're not that infrequent. And they're not that distant. Bad shit happens in your... If you live long enough, real bad... Dude, life will fucking smack you around. <laughs> like, let it be known. And and in different ways, to different people, for different lengths, for different reasons. 
life will come life will come crashing down on you and if you tempt fate long enough then bad shit will happen so in this one instance can i declare to you that i know for a fact saturday is going to be a disaster no i don't know that i absolutely don't know that but i do know that you have enough risk factors here where you, a you should be concerned about what happens on saturday and b more to the point if it doesn't happen for this one and it does become normalized and everyone goes, see, nothing happened, and you find yourself really going down this rabbit hole, well, then it only becomes a matter of time at that point. If, if, if this kind of thing sort of serves as justification for Triller, assuming nothing terrible happens, aha, you see, look at that, we did, nothing happened, so you should be fine. It's like, oh, I drove home drunk and didn't kill anybody and didn't get arrested. You see, driving home drunk is obviously fine. We all know that, like, you know, who, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Have I driven drunk? Yes, one time in college. I super regretted it. Nothing happened. It was two in the morning on a in Williamsburg, Virginia, and there was no one on the streets. Fine, and I wasn't all that drunk anyway. But still, shouldn't have done it. Fucking stupid. Really regret it. Never done it since. Never will do it since. Uh, never will do it. Uh, you know, just living at 20 years old and thinking that you understand risk and safety in the world when you really don't. Obviously, we all understand driving drunk is a bad fucking idea, even if you get away with it. This is, to me, sort of relatively kind of commensurate with that. Um, if you live life long enough, you begin to see that those events that seem so impossible, oh, that will happen, you know, when I'm 80 or something. No, dude, they will happen much earlier than you think they will, and they will happen with a surprising degree of devastation, and you just have to ready yourself for it. So, this should be avoided. I think the Florida Commission is quite shameful, even if it goes well enough on Saturday. They really are, um, you know, they're they're just beyond shame. They're just beyond shame. Who is the highest ranked guy that you think Patty the Batty could beat? Not sure I'd even pick him to beat Bobby Green, Drew Dober, Orlando Venata. No, neither would I. But that's not really the point. Listen, there's a lot of hype behind him. Uh, I'm not going to say it's not necessarily well-placed, but some of it is a little over the top. In other words, if you are from the UK or you like this guy or, or, or he has your, captured your interest, should you be confident about his upside? I, I believe that you should. I believe that you should. But I also pretty much recognize that like people think, it, oh, it's just his defensive issues. No, not necessarily. Um, he has phenomenal experience. And probably at 20 fights, he might feel like I'm ready to start taking on these guys. And maybe he might beat some of them if things go right. Like it's Again, some of those things are kind of hard to say. I wouldn't bet on it, but certainly it's not a thing you could just utterly dismiss. To me, the issue is not just that his defense needs work, although his defense needs a lot of work. It's that his offense, while formidable, it's certainly not even reached. He's 26. He's 26. So like... The way that I think is the most appropriate, and people will disagree, but the way I think you should look at his experience is that um, it doesn't mean he's ready to start taking on contenders. Quite the opposite. What it means is that he's clearly ready for this level. Um, and if he still continues to work on his craft, which I'm confident he will, then in two or three years' time, then I think you will begin to see um, a clearer picture of where he's going to be, right? Maybe not as long as three, could be just two. But I still think that there's like overall game development that is required. First things first would be striking defense. 
But if you go back to what I mentioned before, the Soren and Bach fight, like one thing is if you look at all, well, actually, let's pull up his record. I don't want to talk completely out of um, out of pocket here. So let's pull up his record. Let's see. Okay. Na 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 na. Right, let's see here. Oh Jesus! They don't even have. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. Can you believe that? Good Lord. Uh, okay. So on Tapology, let's look at his finishes, like when things went really well for him, okay? Including on Saturday. First round win in his last two fights, first round wins, okay? The loss to Sorenbach, five rounds. The loss to Nad Naramani, a decision loss, okay? Uh, his, he's got some decision wins too, to be clear. He's got a few of them, Ashley Grimshaw, uh, Julian Erosa, but let's look at his finishes. Jonathan Fracci, Fracci, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. First round. Teddy Violet, second round. Miguel Otto, one, round one. Kevin Petschi, round two. Stephen Martin, round one. Conrad Hayes, round one. And he's got his own, uh, but this is all the way back in 2013. He lost in round one to Anna Konachuk. Okay, uh, Jack Drabble, we're getting back to his like a long time ago. First round, first round, first round. Okay, he doesn't have any finishes in the third round. Now, finishes in the third round are rare generally. But what I'm pointing out to you is he's a strong starter. Very strong starter. The Soren Bach fight told you that if you can withstand the early storm, he doesn't have the same level of intensity later. And again, you might say, well, isn't that just sort of common in human biology? Yes, of course. But if you look at the UFC level, I can name many guys who are stronger in the fifth than they are in the first. You know, and I don't mean this is a character weakness of Patty Pimblett, like nothing at all. I think he can absolutely get to that level. There is plenty there. All I'm trying to tell folks is you went to the grocery store and you bought a, a, a banana and it looks like you're ready to eat it, but it's still a little bit green on the outside, right? So just just wait a second. Just wait a second. Let him get some more experience, some more fight camps to work on everything, including, and I always say this, dude, eventually in the UFC, someone's going to put it on you. Someone is going to put it on you, and what happens when they do? We also need to see that. So what is his upside? His upside is potentially limitless. But what is his current state? His current state is very, very talented prospect who still needs lots of work. Uh, and I think that is fair. I think that is appropriate. And I think if everyone takes their time, he could be extremely uh, successful. If you could magically restore any washed fighter to their prime, who would you choose and why? That's a very easy question for me to answer, and it's uh, it's BJ Penn. It's BJ Penn. I saw his post about like what the difference between me and Habib, and it's like I sort of get his point, you know, where especially in the era in which he grew up, there was some there was an ethos about like weight doesn't matter, time of day doesn't matter, location doesn't matter. If you're really about it and you're truly talented, you should be able to beat these guys. And that was sort of part of like the Hoist Gracie and Gracie legend, essentially. 
And we sort of learned over time there is still something to be said for that. Like jujitsu as a actual self-defense art can really empower smaller people to have success against some of the bigger ones, right? That being that's not entirely misplaced. But as it you know, as it relates to prize fighting, while it's true that there are some knocks on uh, excuse me, uh, Nurmagomedov's resume, he didn't really change weight classes. You know, he had some weight cutting issues himself. Um, you know, there's probably more guys even in his own weight class he could have beat to really sort of solidify this or that. Um, the reality is, like, his game is just much more modern, and I think he would have beaten the brakes off of BJ, to be quite candid with you. Um, however, if you could take BJ Penn at his peak and then give him modern best practices, I wonder what that would do. I wonder how well that would restore him to the top. I have a feeling if he couldn't beat Habib, uh, he'd beat just about everybody else. You got to understand what BJ Penn was at his prime. First American to win the world championships at, at the black belt level in jiu-jitsu. Uh, so he's extremely flexible, utterly dominant in jiu-jitsu from virtually any position off of his back, finding the back on top, you name it, savage ground and pound, great control. When he was with Marinovich brothers, he had phenomenal cardio. He could punch hard. He had an iron chin, and he was, at for his era, you at his peak, at his peak, you could not take him down. He is one of the few guys I've ever thought at his prime, and I'm not saying this is even true. I'm just telling you like what went through my head. He was one of the few guys in his prime I've ever looked at a fighter and been like, dude, right here, right now, in this weight class, he's unbeatable. Um, I've, I've only thought that maybe a couple of times in my life. And I, one of them was when BJ Penn was there. So, you know, does that mean he can come in here and just rule the roost? It, certainly that's a matter of debate. But I, do I just don't think folks understand. He had a jab when no one had a jab. And, dude, this is the other part, too. Like, he would get hit even at bigger weight classes in his prime. And it would barely swell him up. He was hard to cut. One of the first times I ever knew something had changed with Penn was when he fought Nick Diaz. Because I remember it was the first time I ever saw him lumped up. Never seen that. I didn't see him lumped up when he fought St. Pierre. I didn't even see him lumped up when he fought Leota Machida. You know? Uh, that was the first time I was like, hmm. I've never seen that before. That's interesting. Um, and then, of course, subsequent encounters that happened with much greater frequency. But early on, man, early on... Um, he, he had a feel, again, I'm not even saying this is true, but I felt like watching, he was unbeatable at his weight class. What do you think Brunson should do? Wait for something not guaranteed and risk being forgotten or sidelined because guys like Cannoneer, Strickland, etc., fresher matchups could be active and ranking up, uh, excuse me, raking up W's in that time. Izzy versus Rob will happen and the champ recovers or in that time for a possible trilogy. So when... Let's see here. When is the rematch with Whitaker? Do we know yet? Na 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 na. All right, here we go. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't think we have a date yet. Yeah, so here's the deal. I lived through Rashad Evans waiting for a title shot at the time Shogun was champion. And uh, waited and waited and waited. And then by the time he had waited, the division had completely changed at that point. John Jones had surged. And, you know, all of the things he was supposed to have done and was in, he was seemingly entitled to um, fell apart. I think that if the title fight was soon and you could sort of bank on whatever result happening there being in the books, it might make a little bit more sense to wait. And obviously, I'm not Derek Brunson. I don't have to go through camp and whatever else that entails. So, you know, what do I think Brunson should do is sort of a separate question than like what I think I would like to see. But if I was advising Brunson, I probably would advise one more fight. Now, when you take that and against two is a little bit a little bit of an issue, but I think if you just wait, do these divisions move? Sometimes they don't, but in general, in general, they move fast, dude. A year of mixed martial arts fights, the world is completely different from one year to the next in terms of where, who's ranked where and whatnot. There's always a couple of mainstays. Amanda Nunes seems to be just, you know, utterly dominant forever. And um, But even Habib, like, he would still be winning, but he retired and now he's gone and it completely opened up the division and, you know, we'll see what happens. But, no, I really wouldn't uh I wouldn't uh, I would not wait. I would I would the Cannoneer fight cuz here's the thing, you eat Cannoneer and you get six fucking wins in a row and you took out Cannoneer where like the only people are ahead of you would be Boashinia uh and then Rob at that point, right? And then Boashinia has got issues with Vittori and if Rob loses or even Rob wins, kind of slots you in, but that's the other part too. Like what if Rob wins and they want to do a, a trilogy? You know, it, there's a lot of ways where just waiting can blow up in your face and then you just get passed by. And then you get a harder fight that you ordinarily would have gotten and then the whole thing just blows up. So I tend to think you got to strike while the iron's hot just based on the way the UFC has such control. But, um, you know, very easy for us to be like, here's what Brunson should do. You might be answering more what you would like to see Brunson do rather than what he actually should do. Uh, hi, Luke. I'm a medical student at Howard University. I live two minutes from Howard's campus, but I also live about 10 minutes from Georgetown and George Washington. This is a university. Despite them being 10 minutes up the road, a little further than 10, closer to 15, those parts of town are like heaven compared to Howard's environment. Okay, what part of Howard, though? Like off Georgia Ave? Can you please explain to me why that's the case for at least, at least in your opinion? I've never seen such a broken glass with car windows in the street. Until I moved here from Richmond, I thought it was bad there, but compared to here, good Lord. Well, first of all, you're a little soft, if I could just be honest with you. Listen, there is no denying, there is no denying that for major metropolitan areas, and perhaps everywhere, but certainly in major metropolitan areas, including and not exclusive to D.C., crime is up. I mean, it's, you can't deny it. Carjackings up, robberies up, murders up. 
not just here, New York, Chicago, L.A., any kind of top 10, top 15 market, maybe more than that. I don't know exactly what's happening in sort of your mid-major cities or whatever, but certainly in your major cities in this country, crime is up. Fact. Can't run from it. Can't deny it. It is just a reality, and it sucks, obviously, um, that that is the case. However, folks, some of y'all are a little bit soft. I lived in this city in when Marion Barry was the mayor in the 1980s. Let me tell you something, folks. D.C. is a fucking paradise compared to this place in the 1980s. And I lived through that, uh, you know, not saying it was always pleasant or always easy, but there's a lot of folks who are like, wow, there's, uh, you're, you know, there's crime and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't think folks understand what the 80s and 90, early 90s were like before crime began to drop, which, by the way, is still a very much a debated topic by criminologists about why it was happening. Was it... Was it gun control? Was it not? Was it the lead being taken out of pipes? Was it not? Was it a series of other factors, economic you know, revitalization? Was it not? Was it mass incarceration? Was it not? There's a lot of debate about what caused it, but sort of across the country, crime went down. See, but before crime went down, I was here. I don't think folks understand. It is not even remotely comparable. You are significantly safer now at any place in D.C. than you were in that same place in 1985 or whatever. Fact. Here's a perfect example. I used to live off East Capitol Street. For folks who don't know, it connects essentially the old RFK Stadium all the way to the Capitol. Straight line. Straight line. Okay? Uh, literally off of the Capitol, if you're looking at a map north and you just go uh, on the east side of it, there it is. Right? All the way to RFK and into Maryland. Straight shot. And I used to live close to the uh, close to the DC Armory slash um, um, RFK Stadium. In fact, when I was a kid, here's another example. That was where the then Redskins used to play. And when they played there, there was no metro there, so people had to walk from like the nearest place, which was further to our uh, my house, further to the right. And when people would come to go to the game on my left, they would there'd be just thousands of people walking down the street at all times and they're just chucking beer cans in your yard and there was fights out there. Like it was a fucking mess, man, every time the skins played out there. But the big one is this. Um right near there is a park called Lincoln Park. In fact, you guys might remember this from the news. Some of you might there was a big debate because there is a statue in that park of Abraham Lincoln with his hand on a chained uh, or he might have been chained, but he, there, a, a guy who either, uh, I think was still a slave. Um, and here's the story about that. That, that uh, statue was commissioned and paid for by freed slaves after the Civil War. However, if, you're, if you don't know the context and you go and just look at it, it's like here's Abraham Lincoln putting his hand on a slave. And there's this big divide in... Uh, the black community, from what I can tell, between the older folks who really actually like that statue and the newer ones who, you know, have various issues with it. Anyway, there's also, um, you know, uh, other statues there. When I was a kid in that park, dude, if you went there after night, you were getting fucking stabbed. Fact. Like, at a bare minimum, they were taking your shit. Right? There were all these benches, and I used to recall all these dudes drinking beers out of their brown bags and fist fights and my friend got mugged there and blah 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 you go there now <laughs> and it's labradoodles and picnics and you know 
I mean, just gentrified to the nth degree. So I'm not telling you that like crime doesn't matter or that it doesn't suck that there's a difference in neighborhoods between Georgetown and Shaw. Shaw is where essentially Howard University is. Although to me, Shaw has much more character than Georgetown, uh, like by a, by a pretty significant degree. Georgetown sucks. I mean, it's nice, but it sucks. There's zero character to it whatsoever. Fuck Georgetown. But compared <laughs> to when I lived here in the 80s, y'all are a little soft. Buck up, little camper. You will be okay. Trust me. Trust me. Uh-oh. BC is texting me. What does he want? Let's see. Uh... Okay. Okay. He's talking about tomorrow's show. Y'all, I'm sweating like a whore in church. So, you know, listen, I'm not saying that there, you have no reason to be worried, but I've been back in this city uh, since, grew up here, and then I moved back in 04. Been in this neighborhood since 05. And my only incident issue is once I walked my dogs and someone broke in and stole my Xbox and laptop, which sucked. Which sucked, but that's it. I've never had any other issue. And I I don't live in like what is like notoriously famous for one of DC's. I don't live in Georgetown, let me assure you. And I don't live near GW either. I live I live very close to Shaw. I'll put it that way. Like, calm down. Which fighter has profited the most from being a weight bully in their division? Like a guy who could like just cut a shit ton of weight. You could say the biggest one in my lifetime is probably Gleason Tebow. Gleason Tebow was welded to like 200 and then would just constantly cut to 155 and be a fucking rock. You know, god damn. Okay, let me put this on mute. BC won't stop texting me. There, there we go. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, it, 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 does, it didn't turn him into a champion or anything, but it definitely, like, helped him out in his career for sure. Luke, congrats on UNBC reaching 200 episodes. We focus on the positive of the show, but so far, what are the things you regretted or could have done better? Greetings from Greece. I mean, it's all, we had a big meeting today about all the things we're going to tighten up. The only thing I'm going to bring back to uh, the MK channel that's missing as I sweat my way through this under these bright lights is some kind of technique breakdown. Obviously, I've gone back to my personal channel, but I can't do that alone. I've got to bring some to MK, so we're working on some things to, to do that. Someone's asking me about Ariel and Brendan. Like, folks, I'm going to say it one time and one time only more. That's it, last time. That is between them. Two grown men. I'll let them handle it. Do you agree with me that the elite British and Irish fighters need to move to the States to realize their full potential? I include Connor in that. The best soccer players in the USA don't stay in America. That's true. They All, all of our best are playing um, typically overseas. Some are from MLS, but, you know, uh, Weston McKinney and Josh Sargent and Pulisic and whoever else, um, they all play overseas. So here's what I would say. This is a... Something of a complicated question. 
This was an easier answer 10 years ago. 10 years ago, like when you're Dan Hardy's and Bisping's, you know, there's, you know I remember when, when, you guys may not remember this, I remember when Michael Bisping was part of Team Wolfslayer and, in the UK, brought even Rampage over for a time and blah, blah, blah. Or was it Michael Bisping and Team Wolfslayer? Whatever the fuck it was. The point being is, I remember when there was some like standout UK guys, uh, Hardy and Bisping, who did really well coming out of the UK and then... Um, in the case of Michael Bisping, ultimately relocated to the United States, but in the case of Dan Hardy, so spent some significant time in Las Vegas living and training. And um, that was the thing where you could just sort of more more easily defend. American wrestling is still quite dominant, but was he was really dominant back then. And if you, there just weren't as many coaches over there. It was just a hard, it was, it was, it was very, very difficult to maximize potential with wrestling as such a central feature even in now today's game, it was significantly more featured then as like a bedrock foundational skill, and there was less ways to get it than going to the United States. So that it had been true for a time. More recently, you kind of gotten away from that, like where um, you know before these guys were coming out of NCAA's and and um, they were just sort of wrestling in that style. I mean, they had a coach who might have wrestled NCAA and. You know, in other words, they were just bringing a wrestling game where some of that stuff wasn't valuable or even necessary. And then over time, what you saw was guys become good instructors in MMA who never wrestled um, and fighters too, like St. Pierre, who never wrestled formally. And then take that back to their countries where like you know, some of the big camps in Brazil, they didn't have, you know, they had some good wrestlers there, but not like elite wrestlers like you may have found in the United States. And they were pulling up guys who had great wrestling and could use it in MMA and, and you saw that in other countries as well it's it spread pretty far but you know it still remains a bit of a problem do I think that the British and the Irish need to move to the United States to realize their full potential not necessarily no I, I would be speaking a little bit out of turn if I said I had the clear grasp on exactly the level of wrestling instruction and sparring partners related to that instruction for wrestling in all of the UK and Ireland. I don't have a full grasp on that. I obviously know some of the more famous coaches. Um, certainly in jiu-jitsu, I think you can get plenty of that. I mean, dude, London Shoot Fighters has what? Has uh, Hodger Gracie? I mean, you'll be fine training with him, trust me. But I will say that it does appear there are some uh, fighters from that area who, for whatever reason, are underdeveloped um, in that part of the game. So, to answer your question, like, all do all of them need to move? No. Could some of them benefit by either flying out a coach um, and some sparring partners, or more easily, just you know, spending some time at Sanford MMA or whatever? Yeah, there are some that could benefit from that. Again, till. I'm not sure what to say because he fought with a 20 CL and we went through it on uh, on my technical difficulties podcast. Like he, you know, he didn't look great, but it's just hard to know exactly what all of that meant uh, given the injury. But you're right with Connor. Like Connor brought in Dylan Dennis for a time. Folks forget Connor had Ryan Hall uh, as uh, as a sort of a you know. Um, John Cavanaugh got mad when I called Dylan Dennis a coach, but I'm not sure. You know, to call him merely a sparring partner seems very much incorrect. 